Welcome to SocialCast, the weekly podcast talking about crippling societal issues in the United States and how socialism offers remedies to them. SocialCast publishes a new episode every Sunday, so make sure to add us to your podcast library to be notified of new content. Hey there, welcome to SocialCast. My name is Derek, I am your host, and with me today is our brand new other host, Lance. Say hello, Lance. Hello, good evening. My name is Lance. Lance and I are going to talk today about crime, criminalization, and criminal justice. Let's start by defining what crime is. Lance, what's crime? Crime, in its simplest form, is violation of codified laws. There are two main types of crime, right? Violent crime and property crime. Property. Property crime consists of things like burglary, larceny, motor vehicle theft, and arson. Violent crime is made up of five different types of crimes. Murder and non-negligent manslaughter, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, and gang violence. So those types of crimes are the crimes that we have specifically made laws about. We have said these are the things that, as a society, we have deemed not okay. And... In reality, they, they really only cover one aspect of crime. There's, there's a whole world of crime that exists that criminal law doesn't really approach in any meaningful way. Of course, I'm talking about things like um, wage theft and the exploitation of the working class by capitalists. Those, those bigger, more white-collar crimes that we don't really see much of in our criminal justice system. The main distinction between these two classes of crimes being the nonviolent crimes, such as larceny, burglary, etc., and violent crimes is, obviously, this goes without saying almost, uh, violent crimes are crimes that impact the physical health and well-being and safety of a person. Meaning assault, murder, rape, things that will physically damage a person. Um, Crimes that have victims. Clear and delineated, this person has been bruised and has you know, sustained a broken arm because of an attempt on their life. Versus, you know, you can still have a victim with burglary, with larceny, and you can even have, you know accident and injury for those crimes. For instance, if um, if a building is being looted and someone on the inside, like a shop owner, um, gets cut by broken window glass, that is injury. But that is not really considered direct assault on that person. Within the realm of violent crime, it can be further broken down into two factors of premeditated crimes versus crimes of the moment or more more well-known uh, crimes of passion. Uh, for instance, a premeditated murder where someone knows, oh, this person has been stealing from me and my family for three months, and I have found out, and I am now going to kill them for it because it has caused grave injury to me, versus you walking home, finding your partner in bed with some other person, and you becoming so enraged that you assault that other person. What I've always found interesting is that drug offenses are labeled as violent crime. Despite having no real clear victim other than the person who is using the drugs. Right. In in that regard, I think this is where our legal system starts to go kind of astray because first of all there's the issue of criminalization of a a mental health issue because substance abuse and addiction is a mental health issue it's it's not just a a random crime that people decide they're going to commit people turn to substances that we have labeled illicit or illegal as a way to cope with the the realities of their life which could be they have cancer it could be that they lost a loved one it could be that they 
just feel meaningless and adrift, whatever the reason, that response, that addiction response, is is a manifestation of mental health and a, really a cry for a kind of re-evaluation of, of our mental health system and the way that we grant access to care that could keep people from the destruction of addictive behavior. And not only is addiction a sign of mental illness or a symptom of mental illness, it is also often a means that people resort to who have been pushed to the margins of mainstream healthcare. It's people who have chronic pain conditions, chronic ongoing medical conditions that they just cannot afford to treat within the conventional mainstream healthcare system. And because they can't afford to go see a doctor to refill a sleep aid, or they can't afford to see a doctor to refill an antidepressant, they turn to illicit street substances such as heroin or meth. So by being excluded from mainstream healthcare, often through means of not being able to afford it or not being able to make appointments and other accessibility issues, these people turn to these illicit substances and use them to basically self-medicate their conditions, which even if they were not already of the behavioral health setting that addiction comes from, they will now deal with the physiological addiction that many of these substances cause on top of the mental health, behavioral health context that addiction exists within. Absolutely. And I, I think this is a really good point to remind everybody that a lot of these substances that people turn to in, in times of, of personal crisis are substances that have historically been used to great effect in the medical field. And the only reason they have been declared illegal is because of the propensity to abuse these substances. Many drugs that exist on the street today were not always even criminalized. Heroin used to be incredibly widely used. They literally used to make soda with cocaine in it. Meth is essentially um, cold medicine. Cold Fine medicine. medicine. Yes, it's um, derived from cold medicine, basically. These drugs exist in the mainstream pharmaceutical lines as prescribed medications. Heroin is virtually identical to morphine, which is administered widely and broadly in the entire healthcare spectrum from chronic pain management to surgery and acute pain management. You have a smile. Why are you smiling? I'm just, it's nice to be doing this with while we're while we're on the subject of the criminalization of of drugs that have been used widespread medicinally, we we definitely need to talk about the the way that those drugs have been criminalized, because they're they're very disparate between different groups of people, um, and there there's a, a very clear distinction between like the Wall Street broker who does lines of coke every night and the guy selling coke on the on the corner in downtown Detroit and there's there's further a, a breakdown and this isn't accidental there's a, a further breakdown between race white people are criminalized at a much lower rate than black people black people are incarcerated at a rate five to seven times higher than white people for the exact same crime and those prisoners also get more, they're, they're penalized with a longer sentence in addition to being sentenced more frequently. So I, I think there's a, a very important nugget of, of racism and classism in the, the process of criminalization in this country. I, I mean, all... Not all crime necessarily. I mean, there's a pretty fundamental and universal 
truth behind do not kill each other. Um, but a lot of American criminology stems from controlling specific groups of people, specifically African Americans, specifically women and other minorities. And I think one thing that is very important to remember in this dialogue is that we have, you know, in the last, what would you say, five, ten years, we have seen this legalizing, legalizing one, specific one specific illicit substance at a time. Yes, um, most specifically and most recently marijuana, which I believe we're up to... 33 states. 33 states. And what has been notably lacking in every single ballot measure or legislation measure is we are legalizing this product or this herb. It's a plant that grows in the ground. It's not a product. We are legalizing it now. But we're still going to leave the people who were convicted of having this, who would no longer, under the new laws or under the new abolishments, they would no longer be guilty of a crime. We're still keeping them in jail. And it takes additional effort, usually from individual people or individual lawmakers, to say, hey, we have you know, decriminalized this substance. These people who are guilty of having this substance would no longer be guilty of it if they were caught with it today. I think that there's a, a really popular response to that, which is that they're in prison because they broke the law when they did it. And just because the law has changed doesn't mean we should absolve them of their duty to pay the, the penalty for their crime. and. Honestly, I think that's... Thank you for your input, Kamala Harris. <laughs> uh, honestly, I think it's just a bunch of bullshit. It's, it's just a way to refuse to engage around the very real fact that we have over-criminalized these behaviors, which, again, are rooted in mental health, and we have over-prosecuted, specifically, very vulnerable minority groups and in order for us to to go back and undo all of the damage we would have to really take a hard look at why we allowed those situations to occur in the first place and i think that's a conversation america's not ready to have which amendment freed the slaves i want to say the 13th and 15th i think because there were two that dealt specifically with slavery um so the the text of the amendment says uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So what that means is that people cannot own other people unless that other person is a convicted criminal prisoner. So what can now happen with the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which happened in December of 1865, the places that now don't have labor to run their plantations, their tobacco farms, and their cotton farms, can now turn around, go to a prison, and pay the warden of the prison five cents a day, whatever the rate may be. Today, I don't know what the equitable rates are, but you see this even today. You see workers on the side of the road cleaning up debris. You see people in factories making our license plates. You see prison labor, and they are not being paid normal wages. They typically get paid $2 an hour or a day? An hour. An hour. Two to three dollars an hour, depending on the work. First of all, thank you for bringing this up because this is a, a Herculean conversation to have in reality. But there, there's a very distinct line where the American process of criminalization changed, and that was the ratification of the Thirteenth Amendment when we abolished slavery. 
we absolutely had to find these other outlets for how to get those people working back in fields for a pittance because former slave owning farmers didn't have the capacity to to do what they needed to do with their their farms without that unpaid or underpaid labor and to to kind of build on your point of prison labor it's it's definitely something that we see a lot of in the south there there are tobacco plantations cotton plantations and fruit groves that regularly employ and in fact rely upon a, a prison workforce in order to harvest and process their their um, crops but here in Oregon, for instance, at the Oregon State Penitentiary, there's a, a very big program that farms out call center work. And those people are paid less than a dollar a day. Oh, that sounds like a living hell. Yeah. I was trying to see where all the for-profit prisons in this country are, and I'm having difficulty finding them. There are remarkably few. There's only, what, like 23 of them? That sounds about right. I wouldn't like be two dozen fewer. Yeah, it's it's nowhere near as widespread as I had initially thought. Not at all. Uh, but they do exist, and they're incredibly problematic because when you have any sort of condition within capitalism that says this creates more value, this creates more money, and people will do what it takes to make more money because that means you can survive better in a capitalist society. Absolutely. And so what happens with a for-profit prison, and this is this is why there are specific industries that cannot and should not be um, privatized or made for-profit, when that comes to prisons, you get, we need to keep our prison as full as possible to make sure that we are making as much money because if we are getting paid per person staying in our bed, we need to make sure we have as many people in those beds as possible. So we need to make sure that there are still people getting arrested and there are still people getting convicted and sent to jail, not to probation, not to community service, to prison. So kind of tangential to that is is also how much money taxpayers pay to house these people so there's there's kind of two different ways that prisons are are taking money from society in general the first is through actually housing an inmate and in in 2017 the most recent year of death available the cost of, of housing and feeding an inmate was $36,299 per year. That's more than 50% of America makes in wages mm. in a year. And so there's a, a very distinct drive to keep those prisons open and, as you said, keep them as full as possible because if if we break a single link in this chain of, of our criminal punishment system, the entire system starts to fall apart. So how does crime and criminalization fit into socialism? That's a really good question. After I mean, all, this is a socialist podcast. It, it is a podcast about socialism, and I'm really glad that you asked how crime and criminalization factor into that, because the reality is that in... In a socialist system, we would work to to change the way we criminalize, right? And we've we've seen in Oregon the the specific first step of that in decriminalizing personal sized possession of illegal substances. And it's it the the wording of the the law is very clear. It. It does not include people that are carrying, like, sellable amounts of drugs, but people that are obviously carrying an amount of a substance that is meant for their personal use. And that's a, a really important first step in this path to socialism, 
as as I see it myself, because what we're what we're doing is starting to chip away at those links that I just spoke of to chip away at how we're criminalizing people and how we're commodifying people in our criminalization system. And instead of putting that money towards keeping people in prison, $37,000 a year can do a whole hell of a lot for mental health services. Absolutely. I mean, you you take two people out of prison for a year and you've got a full-time therapist that can help eight people a day, five days a week. That's 40 people. So by changing the way we approach these systems that we already have in place, it frees us up to divert our attention and our energy and our other resources to addressing the societal harms that exist that kind of underpin these these things. And there's there's a lot of data about crime and the the underlying causes of crime without fail. It is people who are people who don't have access to resources, people who don't have access to healthcare, people who don't have access to food people who are worried that they're not going to have a house, they turn to crime as a kind of quick fix to to solve these systemic problems that capitalism allows to run rampant. In any context and throughout history, crime has always been, or I should be more specific, Codified laws have always been a reflection of social values, or at least the social values of the people who are making laws. Um, so, for instance, if you have a traditional monarchy, whoever is in the king or queen's seat that day is making the laws. In a you know democratic republic, such as the United States, our representatives are the ones creating laws, the people that we all decide to send to our legislative bodies and say, we want you to tell the government what to do on a day-to-day basis. And when you have a society that is, or when you have a society that highly values profit, that highly values I want to say labor, but not in the sense that they value the work being done by an individual, but they value your ability to contribute to production. Not to say that, you know, a company will pay a fair wage or anything like that, but they value you showing up to work 40 hours a week versus they don't value you not showing up to work or they don't value you showing up to work 20 hours a week. In a capitalist society, you see a lot of regulation around things that prevent profit. Theft is a fantastic example. It's pretty widely known that you can't just up and steal $500 from anyone on the street. Um, Even though, I mean, sure, maybe that individual that is being robbed might not be able to pay their rent, might not be able to make their car payment, but there are laws in place to provide restitution to that individual. Whereas in a socialist society, you, you know, that person would not be as dependent on that $500 in that moment. You know, their basic needs would have been met. They don't have to worry, oh, oh gosh, I've, I've been robbed of this $500. I can't make rent because in a, in a socialist society, they won't have to worry about rent. They won't have to worry about food on their table. That $500 may have been for a luxury item, like a widescreen TV or a piece of jewelry or another fancy electronic, versus in a capitalist society where that can be literally life or death. That can be medication. That can be food. This is a reflection on the values of a capitalist society. When we, you know, a good example, as we've seen throughout this year, is the response to the police brutality and Black Lives Matter movement, where many, many people have been just livid and incandescent in their rage about Target being looted. Target has insurance. 
Target is not missing anything when they get looted, when they have to put plywood over their windows because they were broken out. There's a there's a reason that when you see people who work for Target interacting with news media in, in the wake of something like eluding, they are not upset. No. They are conciliatory and they speak very clearly and very eloquently about the need for racial justice in this country because our capitalist system is set up so that they're going to be okay even if those things are missing. I would like to point out that Target's corporate response to the initial riot specifically in Minneapolis was, we will carry on. We are also going to make sure that this community still receives its essentials and continued deliveries of vital goods. That was a highly commendable corporate response that you do not see often in this country. And also they, they went out of their way to make sure that any staff members affected by by the looting were compensated they would still earn their still earn their paycheck regular paycheck have their health insurance and anybody that needed any kind of crisis counseling after the fact was offered paid counseling services so there's there's a very distinct breakdown between how corporate america sees things like looting and how citizen america sees things like looting. And I think that's exclusively attributable to the fact that 99% of people don't understand exactly how privileged these businesses are within our capitalist economy. I think it just goes to show and reflect the values of the current capitalist society that people were aghast about all this property damage we saw it in Portland, Oregon, where everyone was crying about um, one of the the elk statue downtown, which was actually removed. It wasn't destroyed. They just moved it um, in anticipation. But in all the other property damage, I could go on and on however many businesses were damaged. But people were crying and weeping about that. But these same people lack any compassionate response other than the most performative showmanship to actual people, actual black people being gunned down in our streets, being choked out by our police. That's the actual crime. That would be the crime that we see in socialism where this person, be them a law enforcement officer or not, is killing another person without any just cause, any cause whatsoever. Without any right. But the people who see that and say, oh, well, mm, that's whatever, but then will absolutely go into hysterics over a target window getting bashed out. That's how, that is how out of focus our society's values have become. So this is going to go back to when we were talking about um, Congress. There's a really important distinction that needs to be made between newer Congress people, either freshman or sophomore year Congress people, and the more established politicians. The reason that we see such push for socialist policy making from people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar, um, Ayanna Presley. And, and further to folks like Bernie Sanders, who have been advocating for socialist policy implementation for literal decades. And the, the other side of that, which is the, the more corporatist politicians that are funded in no small part by contributions from big corporations. And when you have a representative democracy like America is supposed to have, um, and the people elected to represent the people have been swayed by moneyed interests, you really have to stop and ask yourself, how are these people making laws that are going to benefit the American people over American corporations? And this might be getting off topic, but that's one of the core foundations of socialism is 
we are electing a government. We are sending people, and they are just people. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was literally a bartender. She was a server. You know, but people who come, I, I remember following this one person on Twitter who unfortunately did not win his district, but that was going to be a long shot anyway, but he was a um, an ICU RN in either Iowa or Missouri, somewhere in that Midwest belt. And he was so disappointed with his government's response to the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic that he decided to run for local office. And he, he literally was still working as a nurse, even through the election, you know, working the three shifts a week, if not more, because overtime is given out like candy at the moment. And it's unfortunate that he lost his seat because yes, he is a Democrat. He was running on the Democrat ticket, but he also had, he had a response to COVID and not all politicians do. And he saw the crisis. He saw the re the the reaction and the repercussions of this lack of of contingent or contingency, and said, "We need to fix this. We need to have a response to this." And he decided to run. And that is not something that you are seeing a lot, because there are so many barriers to entry for new politicians. First of all, it costs money to run for office. And that's that's absolutely bizarre. But it's also something that would only exist under capitalism. Absolutely. And when it costs money to simply get your name on a ballot, you have created inaccessibility. You know, how many people are we simply not even hearing the voices of because they can't afford to put their name in a voter's pamphlet or to produce 500 signs for people's yards? This is, this is actually a really good point, because talking about candidates who, who have run or are running for offices um, at any level that come from a more working class background instead of inherited money or who, who have an extensive background within the political sphere, the, these people are meant to be our representatives. And when 38 million Americans live below the poverty line, that's one-tenth, slightly more than one-tenth. Just over, yeah. Of, of the population of the United States. And when we don't have 10% of our representatives that come from similar backgrounds, who are those people representing? What are they working for? Because they're not working for hard-working Americans who, who know the struggle of having to figure out how they're going to pay their rent, how they're going to pay their bills, how they're going to buy their food, how they're going to take care of their car, how they're going to clothe their kids. All of, all of these things that can be monumental considerations when you exist in a capitalist system that undervalues labor and undervalues the contributions of the working class, who are the ones who are generating the wealth that, that the, the one percenters are, are so keen to hoard for themselves? I was just going to say that this is part of why you see such imbalanced criminalization of things such as looting and you know damage to corporate-owned property is these corporations who are really the ones paying our representatives' paychecks. I mean, obviously, U.S. senators and U.S. representatives receive a salary um, for their work that is paid for by taxpayers, you and I and everyone listening, except for people internationally. Hello. They are also receiving donations, if you want to call them that, and, and gifts from special interest groups, from lobbyists. Let's call those what they are. They're bribes. Yeah. They're bribes with their bribes on them. Yep. Uh, they are tax-exempt bribes. And so when your senator is making, I don't know how much a U.S. senator makes in their freshman year, but let's say... $194,000. Okay. $194,000, which is a pretty good paycheck. 
I would not be upset to get that. I don't know anyone who would. Um, but when you're making that versus, oh, well, you got $5 million from donors last year. Who are you actually going to answer to? In a capitalist society, you answer to the person signing your paychecks. And I mean, that's as true of the McDonald's worker at the drive-thru as it is of me working in a hospital, as it is of a U.S. senator. You answer to the person signing your paychecks, or you stop getting those paychecks. Except if you're a senator. Except if you're a senator. And that's why we see such a sloth approach to changing laws, because so many of our laws exist to serve corporate interest. And they don't want to see anything that will negatively impact their bottom line, and so they keep bribing these politicians into, at the very least, preserving the status quo, if not even pushing a more corporatist agenda. I think that's a a really good point to bring up. so let's let's look at Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell for a oh second. Oh God, can we not? He's so ugly. <laughs> We're not actually going to look at him. We're going to look at his history. So Mitch McConnell was first elected to the Senate in 1984. Since then, he has amassed a personal fortune worth 22.5 million dollars. Now, I don't. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good with the maths. $200,000 a year over the course of the last 23 years. 33 years, I'm sorry. Yes, I was going to say, no, that's wrong. $200,000 over the course of the last 33 years does not equal $22.5 million. So I am bad at math, so I whipped out the calculator. It is, in fact, only $6,402,000. So in in all of the time that Mitch McConnell has been a a senator, a sitting United States senator, he has built a personal fortune of at least $16 million. And I say at least because his his personal wealth is calculated after he's spent money on things. So just like normal budgeting that we do for our electric bill, or our oil changes, those types of things still have to be taken into consideration for for a, a member of Congress. And there's there's this fortune of $22.5 million, only $6 million of which he has built reputably from his position as a senator, and the rest of which came from where? Where is a really good question, because they're not required to tell us. Nope. There's, there's no transparency about how a senator who makes less than $200,000 a year all of a sudden has 200 years worth of wealth. I know the man's fucking ghoul, but he's not that old. No. It's also of, of immense import to talk about the fact that while Mitch McConnell has collected those $16 million in crumbs from the capitalist class, he's established this very purposeful sense of class solidarity with people who have personal fortunes that dwarf his own. Like, literally could eat it and not even notice. Or could lose it and not even notice. That that routinely do lose it because they invest that money and it goes down the toilet. And they just say, oh, it's another loss. I'll invest more later. Or they turn to the federal government for a socialist bailout. So at the root of all crime, really, is need. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's it. That's, that is the the beginning and the end of the root of crime is need. People need money so that they can pay for their housing, so that they can buy food. They need food, so they just steal it. They they commit crimes in an effort to generate income that they don't have another way to access. And we we see this routinely when we talk about the economic situation. I'm, I'm going to focus kind of more specifically right this minute on uh, minority-owned businesses in the time of COVID. 
because I was just researching this earlier today, but in, in the first six months of 2020, American independent business saw a net loss of 22%. So 22% of the existent businesses disappeared in the first six months of the year. And when, when you kind of narrow the focus in on minority-owned businesses, they lost 41% of, of their businesses. So there is a, a substantial difference in the rate at which minority-owned businesses are susceptible to the whims of an uncertain economic environment. Right now, it, it's COVID, but it really applies to anything that causes any kind of financial recession or depression. Those minority business, minority-owned businesses are the first to to hit the chopping block. And when you combine that with the fact that when small business owners apply for loans, there is a, a huge discrepancy in the rate of approvals. White business owners are approved at a rate of sixty percent and black business owners are approved at a rate of 29%. There's an interesting thing to mention here as well, and that is that in a recession or in any time that a business is not doing as well as it's hoping to do, and this could be a specific business is not doing as well as they had hoped in any given time, but all businesses do poorly in a recession. That's why it's called a recession. Businesses will come to rely on two things to carry them through a recession and that is savings and credit. Now for a business to continue operating on savings, first of all, for a business to operate, it is actually far more expensive than a lot of people will imagine. Even the most you know, independent, family-owned, small restaurant can cost fifteen dollars to $20,000 a month just to lease a space, assuming they don't own their own area. But if you have... Um, a commercial space with any sort of decent location, pretty much anything above a uh, food cart in an unknown, unmarked alley, you're going to be looking at leases in the tens, tens of thousands. On top of that, add salary. On top of that, add product. So on and so forth. You either will need to pull on savings to make up the difference of what you're not making in income, or you'll have to float alone and pull from that. And when you understand the terms of, or the scale of finance that businesses deal in, even small businesses, you can see how quickly even a 400000 or $500,000 small business loan will be evaporated. And how quickly even, you know, a million dollars of savings is not going to last a business very long, but... The advantage and the privilege that white business owners have over business owners of color is that a lot of white businesses, or a lot of white business owners, and not all, I won't make that generalization, many do have generational wealth. They have parents who, maybe they're not wealthy, very few people are truly genuinely wealthy, but they have parents who have some money, they have other family who has some money and you know they have a relationship with the bank and as already mentioned banks lend to white people more than they do to black people that is a statistical fact that can't be you know discussed it's it's a static fact that just exists so when you have business owners who have greater access to generational wealth aka savings and greater access to credit it becomes so much easier to float your business through a recession. And that is how a lot of businesses that I have seen who are owned by white people, you know, there's there's a bar, it's not even a mile down the house or down the road from me, and they are continuously saying they are not going to open until there are no serious contingencies in place against COVID-19, which effectively means until we have a true vaccine. That has already been deployed widely. The amount of money it would take to simply say, we're not going to stay in business at all, but still know that we're going to come back 
that is a lot of privilege right there to be able to do that because they know they're going to be able to pick back up where they were. Maybe their expenses are nothing. They're probably still paying rent. But they are going to be able to pick up where they left off, or at least they're confident they are because they have the savings, because they have the access to credit. People of color in this country don't have that. And so when they decide, I'm going to start a small business, they have fewer resources to start with, and they have fewer resources to pursue because they are going to be denied at a higher rate than their white counterparts. And just undertaking opening a business as as a, a member of a minority community, it it is inherently going to be more of a gamble for, than it is for for white people mm-hmm. because of those those mitigating factors that are baked into it still comes back to need you know people recognize that they have a need and the thing is in a capitalist well I shouldn't say the thing uh, that's just poor journalism a thing but a thing is that when you have absolutely zero of your needs met suddenly you have a lot more needs I need to eat I need to shelter myself from the elements It's currently 42 degrees and raining here in the Pacific Northwest. You can't survive more than a couple days outside right now. I need water. I need clean, drinkable water. You know, those are your fundamental just, this is waking up and and being alive. This is not social fulfillment. This is not going to work. This is not um, religious fulfillment. This is not anything above and beyond bare existing. But because in capitalism, we have monetized those. We monetized drinking water. We monetized food. We monetized shelter. There is now a criminalization of, I need to meet this need, and I can't. So I'm going to take it from someone who does have it. And that is now criminalized. But if we start actually meeting people's needs and saying we recognize that you need shelter here is a bare bones studio apartment 150 square feet with a kitchenette and a bathroom to start with here's $400 a month for groceries or whatever you want to say the amount should be here's basic health care here are your most essential needs being met that person is going to say okay I don't need to steal to get food. I don't need to steal to make rent. You know, that person may choose to steal above and beyond that to say, oh, well, I like that person's TV better than I like mine, so I'm going to steal that TV. You know, in in those terms, there's not much to be done because we don't need a TV. That's not something that we're all going to say, oh, we should all be entitled to a TV. I don't think anyone would rationally make that decision. But when you don't have the need of, oh, if I don't steal this food, I'm going to starve to death. That's where capitalism has stepped over its bounds. And that's where socialism is really looking out for everyone who is participating in the system is, you know, we all recognize we're going to be paying taxes. We all need to put into a common fund. And from that, we all should be getting back roughly however much we put in, give or take whatever we actually need to survive. And knowing that the, the root of crime is necessity more than it is just a, a desire to be malignant, I, I think that understanding that is essential to charting a new path forward, both in terms of just the the evolution of society but also in terms of the elevation of our country we criminalize at at a higher rate than any other developed nation we have the one of the largest prison populations on the planet if not the largest yeah for by over 400,000 years we have 2,121,600 inmates and our runner-up is the People's Republic of China, 
with a population, I'd like to note here, with a population over 2 billion. They have a prison population, number of inmates, of 1,710,000. So, the United States leads the world in number of prisoners, but also in number of prisoners per capita. So, our, our rate is 655 people per 100,000. The next closest country is El Salvador, which incarcerates at a rate of 590 people per 100,000. Then it's Turkmenistan at 552, Thailand at 541, and it just it goes down from there. Um, um, we imprison a disproportionate number of people because we have created so many laws. Well, not only have we created so many laws around why people go to prison, but we've cr allowed to be created so much need that these these crimes are really seen as a, a part of the fabric of American society. And the fact that we, as the third largest nation in the world, have the largest prison population and 10% of our population living in poverty and another 50% living with things like food insecurity or um, insurance insecurity, things that, that socialism could provide real solutions for. I, I don't see a logical argument for allowing capitalism to continue eroding the quality of lives for so many people. We also have to look at the fact that it, for many jurisdictions and for many crimes, sentencing is not consistent. For, for any given, or let's assume you steal someone's car, and it's not a nice car, let's say it's a $5,000 car, you get caught, you go to jail, you get tried, and you're found guilty, you could be fined, you could, you know, go to prison for a year or two, or you could go to prison for 20 years. There's no consistency to it, and it's, you know, with the exception of a few jurisdictions, it's essentially up to the judge's discretion and that that brings up another another key point that i wanted to to talk about in this episode when when we have a, a crime whose punishment is is payable by fine that literally means that people who have access to wealth can commit crime with impunity this undermines the the very cornerstones of any justice system. If you have a system that can be circumvented just because you have more money than someone who did the exact same thing you did, that is not justice. There, there is no justice that's, in that system. That's basically just pay to play. It is. And it criminalizes and imprisons people in poverty. Which only exacerbates the existing problem because now, for, for many, many businesses in many, many states, they don't hire ex-convicts. They don't hire felons. And there are certain industries, um, such as nursing, such as medicine, that once you have been convicted of a felony, you can never work in that industry again. Nationwide. And so if you have made an attempt to escape poverty and you have gone to college and you've gotten your nursing degree and you get caught committing a felony, you are now back. You are right back in poverty and there is realistically no chance that you're going to escape because you, first of all, you will have to serve your prison sentence, however long that may be. And now it's going to be harder for you to obtain housing. It's going to be harder for you to obtain employment to start with and it will be impossible for you to obtain employment in something that you are skilled and trained in. So this is especially important when we're talking about decriminalization because one of the first things to come up in any meaningful conversation about decriminalization is substance abuse. Mm -hmm. And in this country, a drug conviction is a felony. Yep. And so if 
if you have have done the impossibly hard work of, of what the right likes to advocate for, of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and putting yourself through college and getting your degree in something that is, is going to create financial stability for you. And at any point in time, you you do as so many millions of people in this country do on a daily basis and you turn to these these substances to help mitigate your your own internal crises then if you get caught you lose everything and it's not like getting getting caught doing coke so that you can stay awake for your two back-to-back 24-hour shifts at the hospital because you're an ER physician and it's the middle of a pandemic and there's not enough people to go around. Um, It's not like you're going to get back all of that time. It's not like anybody's going to refund you the money that you've spent on your education or say, oh, well, you don't have to worry about your student loans. No, you're still going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans that you are going to be responsible for and expected to pay back regardless of the fact that you no longer qualify to do the job that you were trained to do. But we definitely need to talk about the effects of generational incarceration, especially within uh, minority communities. When you, when you look at black families as a whole, one of the things that everybody likes to, to harp on and on about is missing fathers and single mothers with all of these children. All of these, and sorry, casting finger air quotes, obviously, because I'm not going to judge how many children somebody has, unless it's like 12. That's too many. Yeah. Um, but th- there's, there's a very real problem created by saying, okay, John, you were trying to provide for your family. You were trying to make sure that you had food and shelter and electricity and heat for your family, but you were going about that the wrong way. You were going about that in a way that we have decided arbitrarily is criminal. And so now we're going to have to put you in prison. All of that, again, to underscore what I just said, is arbitrary. It is, it is made up in ways that are, are meant to penalize people for, for doing whatever they need to do to exist. And when we, when we go forward with this action and we take, say, a father out of the, the familial picture, what we've created is a system where we know households with children have to have two working parents. And we've now removed half of their possible income stream and put it in prison and said, you tried to provide for your family the wrong way. You don't get to provide anything anymore. So now we've created a situation where these these broken families are going to have to rely on some sort of government subsidy, whether that be SNAP or Section 8 or, or what have you in order to continue functioning. And that creates a system wherein it just keeps getting harder and harder to get yourself out of that because each month, whatever assistance you get isn't enough. You're still, we're, we're creating a situation where people are reliant on these, these government programs in ways that these government programs aren't designed to sustain. And then what happens is, as those children get older, the, the burden of working and helping to provide for the family is placed on them at a younger and younger age. And because we do have some labor laws in this country, um, what we see is these youth turning to criminal activity as a way to generate income to support their families. So we have not only taken a key parental figure out of the home and disrupted the family to an absurd extent, but now we have adultified children, which is hugely traumatic from a mental health perspective, and it's not only going to lead to them participating in criminal activity, but it's going to to lead to them almost inevitably participating in substance abuse. And 
because we're talking about families that are already disenfranchised and vulnerable, those kids aren't going to have access to the kind of robust mental health care that a well-off family is going to have access to. So of course they're going to turn to drugs to medicate their way out of whatever they're feeling about their life situation. And it, it becomes cyclical. And this is where the idea of generational incarceration comes into play because by, by removing the father from the family in the first place, we have created a system where fathers are going to keep being removed on and on down the chain. And we're going to create a larger and larger necessity for social support systems in order to underwrite the, the over-criminalization that we have committed. You specifically use the example of dealing and selling illicit substances as a means of making your ends meet. How many of the efforts to legalize marijuana in the last 15 years or whatever have been dependent on the taxation of that product. All of them. Every single last one. It's not that, I mean, yes, there is the moral belief, or at least people think they have the moral belief that, oh, because you're using this illicit substance, you're morally inferior, you don't have morals, or what have you. Ultimately, in the eyes of the government, it comes down to how can we tax this? How can we, the government, receive revenue for this? How can we benefit from this? And every single legalization of marijuana has included immense taxation, funding things from largely education. That's been a very popular recipient of marijuana tax dollars, but you also see it in infrastructure projects. You see it in... Um, in police budgets, which is another discussion. You see, when we have legalized marijuana, we have introduced very sizable tax structures around it and essentially brought it into the same realm as alcohol or even prescription medication, as medical marijuana has been treated for quite some time now. So all of a sudden, it is now legal to deal marijuana which means it's socially acceptable to deal or sell marijuana. But in so doing, what we have done is take away a viable revenue stream for these, these people that exist in the margins of our society anyway. So now we have created even more need. And there's, there's absolutely no question about the fact that the people who have benefited the most financially and economically from the legalization of marijuana are white people when the the historic perspective of marijuana use has been confined pretty succinctly to the black population and what's a, a little funny is the people who use marijuana have not really changed over the course of the last few decades what specifically hasn't changed across the last few years of marijuana legalization same people who were using it before are still using it, and very few people who weren't using it before are using it now. The only difference is people can walk into a store, show their ID, hand over some cash, and they walk out with some marijuana. Instead of meeting Bob behind the alley at the local mall and hoping that there's no one around and slipping him a $50 bill and you get what you get. Also, while we're talking about the, the marijuana taxation scheme. A lot of the money generated through marijuana taxation is being funneled into addiction treatment and recovery. And so it's it's not like we've we've just gone all willy-nilly and said, oh, just do whatever you want. It's it's been a very thought out and and purposeful step to not only addressing the overcriminalization of communities that utilize what again is a naturally occurring herb, but also addressing the harm that comes from substance abuse behaviors. One note I just want to say out loud is there is a distinction on the behavioral health level, not on a 
legalization of substances, um, but from the psychoactive, from the behavioral health perspective, there should be made a note of the difference that marijuana is not a physiologically addictive substance. You're not going to go into withdrawals if you don't smoke a joint. You will go into withdrawals if you don't get heroin. You will go into withdrawals, and they are severe. They often require hospitalization and can be fatal. Withdrawals from even alcohol, with which, another note, is legal for people 21 and over, but alcohol withdrawal, heroin withdrawal, meth withdrawal, you know, these are very real physiological responses our bodies have to not receiving these substances after receiving them for so long, and that is something that is absent from marijuana. And also other other types of naturally occurring substances, too. One of the things that we saw on the ballot in Oregon this year was a, a measure to legalize psilocybin therapy. And psilocybin, for anybody that doesn't know, is the psychoactive compound present in magic mushrooms. It has a demonstrated efficacy for resolving trauma in patients with both standard and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. It is, is a very efficacious treatment for depression and for anxiety. And exactly the same as marijuana, it doesn't create any kind of addictive behavior. So there's, there's a really interesting dynamic to be looked at in terms of the, the specific drugs that you might be talking about and the effects of those drugs on a person. Because certainly drugs like cocaine or methamphetamine or heroin are, are very addictive and can have, as Lance rightfully pointed out, fatal implications if, if that is not constantly supplied. I mean, that's why we see methadone clinics. That's why, despite the fact that methadone is seen as a, a dirty treatment for, for heroin junkies, methadone treatment is, is a vital piece of making sure that people who have built up an addiction to to heroin are able to live their life in in a meaningful and productive way without suffering the ill effects of heroin withdrawal so that's our show for this week we we've talked about a lot of a lot of stuff and a lot of really deep problems that exist within our criminal punishment system if you have any questions or any suggestions for things that we can address in our next episode, which is going to be about the police, uh, feel free to leave those in comments on social media. At, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also comment on most of the platforms that you find your podcast on. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's social cast. Join the conversation with us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Socialcast Podcast and on Twitter at SocialcastPod. If you're interested in supporting Socialcast, you can find us on Patreon.